0: Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Tanner and I'll be one of your hosts today along with Taylor. Taylor, how are you doing?
1: Not too bad. It's cold, it's snowy. I'm sore from shoveling. How about you? I'm not too bad.
0: Temperature wise here is showing uh, -4 right now with the wind chill down to -29.
1: I, uh, I think it was a balmy negative six when I shoveled. I didn't even bother looking at the wind chill because like, what's it matter at that point? Mm-hmm. But uh, it was worth the cool selfie that I got to take with like my yeah, beard. Yeah, that was all a frozen. good one. So nice yeah, frosty uh, beard. All worth it. All worth it.
0: These are fun times uh, with my students because like when the wind chill gets down that low, that's a great time to show them that minus 40 is the point where Celsius and Fahrenheit uh, cross.
1: That's the same. <laughs> they in fact do not matter.
0: <laughs> It's an easy way for them to sort of conceptualize. Although, still, for a student from, say, Panama or Southern China, it's still kind of hard to conceptualize what is
1: <laughs> negative forty feel like. I, I would imagine it's it's hard for me to really know, and like I've experienced it.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: I it's mean, a like, different kind of cold.
0: There's a limit to what layers will do, and you know, getting down to to those temperatures it just hurts to be outside. So you shouldn't do it. Uh, you shouldn't be outside.
1: I think that's something I was kind of thinking about as I was shoveling today is after about 10 minutes, it got really difficult. Like you even mm-hmm. process kind of what you're doing, like your thinking gets a little slower, like your hand-eye coordination gets slower. It's it's interesting, like the effects that cold have on mm-hmm. you. And we talk about that so often on here, but it's, you know, I was kind of trying to be like aware of that today as I was out there.
0: What have uh, What have you been up to aside from just being cold in general?
1: Uh, well, during this most glorious time of year, college football really dominates with our college um, bowl games and everything that are going on. Obviously, like we have the contest going on. Darcy is actually currently in the lead. I think she pulled out a two-game lead uh, after yesterday. But wow. A few more games uh, today, and then there's still a bunch more to go. Yeah, that's been a lot of it. That, And I've kind of rediscovered my love for uh, Bob's Burgers. It's a just like a perfect one where I've, I think I've seen basically every episode multiple times. But it's just a good one to have on when you just need something on the TV. You know, if you're Mm -hmm. if you're cleaning or just wanting to hang out for a little bit. It's a good one. It's definitely in the same vein as like a King of the Hill where, you know, this weird family is all flawed, but they all, you know, do care about each other in their own weird way. That's good. Yeah, I've still never watched an episode of Bob's Burgers. I would honestly say, like, just start with like the movie. You can watch that without watching the show. And if you're into that, then you'll love the show.
0: Yeah, I've been reading a book, actually. It's actually a book that I've had for several years, but I've never really sat down to read it cover to cover. I've just kind of cherry picked information here and there. Mm -hmm. It's called The Tall Tale in American Folklore and Literature by Carolyn S. Brown. And it's an examination of the tall tale as a genre, as an art form. One of the most interesting insights so far is her description of the tall tale as a kind of in-group, out-group
1: identifier. Hmm, that's really interesting, actually.
0: A tall tale traditionally begins rooted in some level of reality, and then mm-hmm. as you're, you know, reading or hearing it, it slowly drifts toward the the absurd and the, the impossible. It kind of has a, a magical realism sense to it, just kind of in a very uh, short form. Mm-hmm. There's this gradient of truth to fiction that develops in any good tall tale. And mm. to really appreciate and understand every facet of that, you have to be able to identify when that shift is happening and mm-hmm. to what degree it's happening from full truth to an exaggeration of the truth to something that's blatantly false or impossible. And if you don't have the, the correct you know, in-group knowledge, you may not be able to identify exactly when a tall tale becomes funny. Or becomes tall. Interesting, And that caught my attention because it's kind of similar to how I use tall tales in class sometimes. Mm-hmm. I'll use them when we have like a, a seminar or a day where I want to sort of practice some different type of reading skills that's not quite so academic in nature. And, you know, the language that's used in, in the written forms of Paul Bunyan and, say, Pecos Bill, the language itself is pretty simple. It's not very complicated. Mm-hmm. But... It's a good way to to gauge understanding with students mm-hmm. you know when I start seeing students you know furrowing their brows when they're reading about mosquitoes the size of horses in Paul Bunyan <laughs> that's good because it shows mm-hmm. they they get it they see something that's not logical, so they're understanding what's in the story. you know when I see a student read it and they seem perfectly fine, I have a sense that they they maybe didn't understand what they just read. Um, right. So I, I kind of use it similar. You know, this is this is sort of an identifier of understanding kind of the the cultural and the real world knowledge.
1: It's interesting that they play kind of the same role as like memes do today. Yeah, very that, much. Like, you know, why are there a bunch of little Shiba Inu dogs and in track jackets <laughs> on my Twitter? <laughs> right. And you know what I mean? Like, if you don't, if you're not necessarily, you don't have to be part of that group, but it plugged into that world, at least to understand mm-hmm. like what it is and why they make the Russians so angry. It's a fun
0: art form that I feel like I I think probably most people wouldn't think of it as literature, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. because it's kind of thing you hear in, you know, elementary school. Someone Mm -hmm. reads to you in the library.
1: I I think the other thing I was kind of thinking about in this is there's kind of a gradient in truth in like all good fiction storytelling. Right. Mm -hmm. So, like, think of like a Quentin Tarantino movie. I think it follows a lot of this stuff where it feels real enough to feel real. Like, you don't feel like it's a superhero movie. But there are these shifts of exaggeration and, you know, to a point and some of them blatant falsehoods, like mm-hmm. you were saying. And that's what makes a lot of those movies so fun. So it is interesting that, like, it's sort of a timeless thing in, in this.
0: I mean, it's the kind of thing everyone does it. I mean, the tall tale is kind of considered a classically and somewhat unique American form of storytelling. But yeah, it has those same elements that you see in other places. Um, so yeah, it's it's interesting to to sit down and read a little bit more explicitly about it and kind of see you know what is the what is the mechanism that makes them interesting I think that means we need to get to part four of Lusitania
1: yeah let's do this thing let's do Lusitania part four we last left off uh, with the sinking and like the immediate recovery and all of that so today what are we looking at more of a broad scope we're going to be talking about international responses some of the big picture things and then kind of what the overall results of, of what came out of this. Uh, So we'll kick it off here with discussing that international response. For the U.S. and Britain, really, that begins at 2.33 p.m. on May 7th, 1915. The Kinsale Wireless Station sent the British Admiralty a message consisting of just two words. Lusitania sunk. In Queenstown at the American consulate, Wesley Frost, he's actually the American consul, He's informed of the sinking and subsequently telegraphs the U.S. ambassador, Walter Page, in London. However, initially, although the ship's been reported as sunk, I'd have to think that, you know, it's a big deal, but probably they're optimistic because it's reported that there's no fatalities. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because of this, Page goes ahead with his dinner party in honor of Edward House, one of President Wilson's closest advisors. The classic Dewey beats Truman headline there, right? What it reminded me of was,
0: I remember when we were living in Pittsburgh, there was a mine collapse.
1: Mm, I remember
0: that in West Virginia. But I remember that being a news story and going to bed and them saying that, you know, all of the miners were safe. And the next day, it Mm -hmm. was the complete opposite. Obviously, a slightly less famous story, but that's exactly what it reminded me of. That's kind of the ultimate twist to the story.
1: Yeah. And like, I think, unfortunately, the other thing I think of now is how often in the mass shooting situations that we see, do you see those things of, you know, Mass shooting at such and such one person killed, and in two hours that one person is fifteen. You know what I mean like
0: we've been trained to inflate that number that we see in mm-hmm. our head because we know it's going to be higher than that
1: right, sort of the same thing going on it's it's interesting how it's almost like people want it to always be good, and then it, it isn't um however, as with uh, you know like we were just talking about, newer and more accurate reports would come as the dinner progressed. this would lead to house predicting. We shall be at war with Germany within a month.
0: I think that's interesting with um, with Edward House here. Someone that I didn't really read, I, I didn't know anything about. I think it was probably a name that I'd heard before. I mm-hmm. didn't know who he was. And he was sort of in lockstep with uh, Woodrow Wilson in terms of how they assess things. And so he was he was pretty good at predicting how Wilson would respond to, mm-hmm. to events. The most interesting thing I learned about uh, Colonel Edward M. House is that he was not an actual colonel. <laughs> nor was he in the military at all <laughs> that was just a nickname so kind of a, a colonel in the spirit of colonel sanders <laughs> the way that you could just kind of be a doctor if you decided you were <laughs> you could do the same if you wanted to be a colonel
1: the same way that uh spin the cat is a second mate yes so wilson himself received the first notification of the sinking in the early afternoon and messages from Consul Frost later that evening would provide a more detailed estimate of the magnitude of what had happened. With upwards of 1,000 killed, it would be taken as a given that a fair number would be Americans. So, you know, that initial response of basically trying to sort out, like, how big of a problem is this? Moving on a little bit to the inquiry portion, the initial Board of Trade inquiry began on June 15th of 1915, a little over a month after the sinking. It was presided over by someone who we've definitely talked about on the show before, a returning visitor, Lord Mercy. Nice. So he's Britain's rec commissioner at the time, and he's the man who had presided over several other famous maritime incidents, including the Titanic, the Empress of Ireland, and the Falaba. So very well-respected and knowledgeable guy. From the beginning, it's clear that the British government had every intention of pinning full responsibility for the disaster on Captain Turner. Captain Richard Webb, director of the Trade Division of the Admiralty, wrote the following. In taking the course he did, the Master of Lusitania acted directly contrary to the written general instructions received from the Admiralty and completely disregarded the telegraphic warnings received from Queenstown during the hours immediately preceding the attack. On the facts at present disclosed, the master appears to have displayed the most inconceivable negligence, and one is forced to conclude that he is either utterly incompetent or that he has been got at by the Germans. (laughs) In considering this latter possibility, it is not necessarily to suppose that he had any conception of the loss of life which actually occurred, and he might as well have thought that being close to the shore there would be ample time to run a ship into a place of security before she foundered. Some pretty heavy accusations.
0: I know, I was amazed the quickness with which those types of things were pulled out, going straight to the, he's been bought off by Germany. Some of the, the first public commentary, or not public, but commentary about this is that he is
1: a traitor, or he's been paid off. I guess sensationalism isn't a new thing, huh?
0: Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, kind of the extent to which going to this inquiry... The the cards were kind of marked beforehand, mm-hmm. and contrasting that with the actual result, I think is interesting.
1: Uh, so both Winston Churchill and First Sea Lord, Jackie Fisher, concurred with this assessment. Jackie Fisher added his own opinion to the matter, writing that, As a Kinard company would not have employed an incompetent man, the certainty is absolute that Captain Turner is not a fool, but a knave. I hope that Captain Turner will be arrested immediately after the inquiry, whatever the verdict.
0: (laughs) Whatever the verdict?
1: (laughs) I feel absolutely certain that Captain Turner of the Lusitania is a scoundrel and has been bribed. No seaman in his senses could have acted as he did. Pretty immediate and big smear campaign.
0: That first one we, we said was from Richard Webb, who I think is not noteworthy outside of this inquiry unless you're like a huge Royal Navy head Um, here. I mean, this is Jackie Fisher, who's a a huge name in the Navy of this time saying Mm -hmm. these things. And and this is before the inquiry has found anything.
1: So one of the main accusations against Turner was that he had steered his vessel too close to land, violating the order to avoid prominent headlands and steer a mid-channel course from Diana Preston. Turner thought he had been some 15 miles from the Irish coast. He insisted that he had closed in to take a four-point bearing to find out precisely where he was. Carson contended that he must already have known his approximate location. Turner replied that while he had, he was in part relying on guesswork. In response to further pressure, he for once showed some animation snapping back. I wanted to get my proper position off the land. I do not do my navigation by guesswork. Which I mean that checks out for what we know about Turner, right? Like he's that's it that's his greatest skill is of a navigator.
0: Yeah, and it gives us more of a look into his personality. We kind of saw that with uh, talking about the watertight doors when he was testifying about the Titanic, of he doesn't seem to have a lot of time for people who aren't directly connected with sailing a ship. Mm-hmm that he is in command of all of those other things. He, he doesn't show much patience for what he considers to be time wasting or irrelevant material. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's obviously standing up for his, not just himself really, but kind of his trade as a captain, as a navigator saying that is absolutely not how this works.
1: Responding to the criticism of the ship's slow speed, only 18 knots. He explained that he needed to time his arrival to Liverpool to avoid low tide. If they couldn't cross the Mercy Bar and enter Liverpool Harbor, they would be sitting ducks for any U-boat waiting in the area. And that is a common thing. Like Even the departures from New York are made mm-hmm. with that thought in mind of you have to clear that bar to get into the harbor.
0: It's the kind of thing that would be highlighted you know, by a passenger or by someone who doesn't understand the workings of these things. Well, why are we going so slow? The speed is our defense. Whereas you've got the captain and the people involved with the voyage saying that's I mean, that's not everything. You know, Mm -hmm. there's there's more to this than just going fast, 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 because if we get to Liverpool and we can't get in because of the tide, almost a guarantee there's going to be a U-boat sitting right there waiting for exactly that occurrence.
1: Which, I mean, honestly, that's where U-20 was supposed to be, Mm -hmm. right? It was that that's exactly what she would have been looking for.
0: If you're having to waste time and sail around um, until the tide comes back, that's probably the most ideal setting for a U-boat captain.
1: Uh, The final accusation was Turner's failure to plot a zigzag course. Turner was under the impression that zigzagging was only required if a submarine was actually sighted. I think the general thinking of a liner like Lusitania is she can just outrun a Mm U-boat. So why zigzag?
0: Yeah, and also the zigzagging, like what we just talked about with the timing. You know, he's timing this Mm -hmm. out. Zigzagging is definitely going to affect that.
1: All right. So moving forward a little bit to the end of the inquiry. On July 17th, Lord Mercy published his report on the matter of the Lusitania, placing blame solely on the captain and crew of the German submarine that had torpedoed the Lusitania. Along with that, he also blamed the German government that had allowed such an uncontrolled aggression from one of her boats. In the opinion of the court, the act was done not merely with the intention of sinking the ship, but also with the intention of destroying the lives of the people on board. That's a pretty, like, you know, they they don't really mince words. They don't try to, like, spread the blame around. Like, the blame is squarely put on the German government and the actions of the U-20.
0: I don't know how that stands up from a strict legal perspective mm-hmm. in terms of judging intent based on this. But I think it's, it's clear how you, you could come to the conclusion that a submarine captain torpedoing a passenger liner knows that he is going to kill passengers.
1: Mm-hmm. The warning from the German embassy was put forth as evidence that the sinking was actually a premeditated act, which I mean, right? Like, if you say you're going to kill someone and that person winds up murdered, you're probably suspect number one, right?
0: I think it's interesting from from the legal side of things in that, you know, that, that warning that was issued, it wasn't saying anything that – it wasn't uh, stating anything new, basically. This wasn't a mm-hmm. new warning that was being issued. It was simply stating what the conditions were at the time. So, yeah, I, I think, is it a stretch to use that as evidence of, you know, this is premeditated murder? Uh, probably. But I think it definitely doesn't help Germany's case to say, well, you said that this was going to happen and then it happened. so.
1: Mm-hmm. Mercy concluded that Captain Turner and Staff Captain Anderson acted competently and performed their duties in a manner befitting their station. No doubt they were missteps in handling the ropes of the boats and in other such matters. But there was, in my opinion, no incompetence or neglect, and I am satisfied that the crew behaved well throughout and worked with their skill and judgment. They did their best in difficult and perilous circumstances, and their best was good. So, basically, I think Mercy is understanding that anytime you evacuate a passenger liner, it's it's not going to go well, and that's about as good as you can hope for, is what happened.
0: It really is amazing seeing all the pressure that's on him at the beginning from... Jackie Fisher and from Winston Churchill and from Webb, these things kind of laid out in advance and you've even got people basically saying, Hey, uh, I think, I think Lord mercy needs to, needs to read this note uh, before, before, you know, mm-hmm. this inquiry, there's every attempt to stack the deck against him. And Mersey still comes to this conclusion that the crew, the captain were not to blame for this. So I think there's a, a certain level of commendation, uh, deserved mm-hmm. for, Lord Mersey, who probably could have made things just a lot faster and easier for himself by just going along with that.
1: Also noted in the inquiry is that some lives were lost due to passenger behavior. That includes attempting to launch lifeboats without proper crew assistance or supervision. So that's something that you see a lot too. And that could be a little bit of a breakdown in the evacuation process where passengers feel like they have to do something like that. But also, you know, people panic, they do something dumb, they drop a lifeboat with two people in it. And that puts you behind the eight ball a little bit. So it's interesting to see that kind of factored in as you know, more of a secondary cause of some of the lives lost. Yeah, I think it is interesting that the report, like you said, it vindicates Captain Turner, but it could have so easily done the opposite.
0: There are some what we know now are flaws with Mersey's findings in that. I mean, the, that inquiry came to the conclusion that two torpedoes had sunk Lusitania and we we pretty much know that that's not true, mm-hmm. but at the time they they kind of needed something to explain that second
2: explosion,
1: right?
0: Which we'll talk about uh, at the end of the episode. So getting into some of the American response and just some general anti-German backlash here. So it'd be untrue to say that the Lusitania directly led to U.S. entry into the war. Mm-hmm. Even just just looking at the timeline alone tells you that you know it's two years until the U.S. finally joins in. But I think it's also good to avoid going too far the other way. Mm-hmm. So often happens in history, you know, an event is put forward as some monumental thing and then the next trend is to say that well, well this was not important at all. It was actually something else that was important. Mm-hmm. And it, obviously that's usually uh, somewhere in the middle is the is the truth. It's inaccurate to say that it had no effect on how Americans perceived uh, the war and and specifically Germany's role in it. Um in a conversation with the secretary, President Woodrow Wilson said I dare not act unjustly and cannot indulge my own passionate feelings. So reading about Woodrow Wilson, you kind of it's a very common type of response for him not to react emotionally to something,
2: mm-hmm.
0: or at least not in public, kind of making it a little bit hard to read what he's actually feeling about something. The sinking uh, obviously gave pro-war elements in the U.S. excellent ammunition to justify their agitation for, for joining the war. Right. Basically just proved everything that they'd been saying. The Germans are bloodthirsty, they're barbarians, they need to be stopped. And we need to to help do that. Obviously, if if you were more in the neutral camp, for some people, this kind of tipped them towards at least accepting US aid for the allies, uh, even if not direct military intervention, they were probably more okay with sending munitions, sending vehicles, things like that.
1: Yeah, I think this is one of those things where it makes it harder to stay neutral, right? It's it's like when you hear stories of mass graves being found in Ukraine. You, you hear these mass graves and it's it's a lot harder to be like, well, you know, maybe the Russia has good reasons, maybe Russia has good reasons for being there.
0: Yeah, it 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 definitely it makes the waters a little less muddy, and that's not to say that it makes the decision easier. Right. of what to do in response to that, but it makes it seem almost callous to just stay in the middle. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. So, obviously, there still remain those who are either still sympathetic to Germany or probably more generally just uh, focused on an anti-war stance, mm-hmm. more of a philosophical focus on pacifism. A good example of this comes from the June 1915 issue of The Advocate of Peace, uh, a newspaper that was put out by the American Peace Society. Um, can can you guess what they're advocating here? <laughs> uh, so, this is a, a pretty short article. It's called... Atrocity and the Lusitania. Uh, so I'm just going to read the whole thing here. It's like three paragraphs. <clears throat> Atrocity? Yes, atrocities indeed, a plenty. An American citizen was drowned March 28th because of the sinking of the British steamer Falaba by a German submarine. An American vessel, the Cushing, was attacked by a German aeroplane April 28th. The American vessel Gulflight was torpedoed by a German submarine and a number of American citizens were killed on May 1st. And then, on the 7th of May, came the sinking of the British liner, Lusitania. These were extraordinary events, subversive of reason, justice, and humanity. They were atrocities. Because of them, the people of the United States have been stirred as they have not been stirred since the 15th of February, 1898, when 268 American lives were lost because of the destruction of the Maine in the harbor of Havana. And yet, there's nothing about any one of these events or all of them put together, that compares with that larger and more stupendous atrocity. The atrocity of the war itself. All of these tragedies were in violation of the rules, euphemistically known as laws of war. There seems to be no doubt of that. But this world war, so wicked that no nation dare own its paternity, is the very soul of atrocity, most hideous as it is most unparalleled. The sinking of the Lusitania only brought the atrocity nearer home to us. In assessing the atrocities of this debacle, men need to weigh and remember with precision and care. Simply to dwell upon our own losses is a childish misinterpretation of world affairs.
1: That was impressive.
0: (laughs) So obviously that's coming at it from a generally pacifistic worldview of saying, actually the war crime is war itself. So (laughs) think about that. That overall pacifistic view was actually shared as high up as the US Secretary of State William Jennings Bryan. Hmm. So rather than sending a formal complaint to Germany, Bryan was of the opinion that to preserve neutrality, it was actually Great Britain who was deserving of criticism for the actions that had led to Germany's submarine campaign. Interesting. We we talked about certain instances in in world history in in the world today and yeah you can you can bend over backwards to find justifications for things but at the end of the day it is in fact the country that invades the other country that's doing something wrong or right in this case the country that torpedoed the other ship full of passengers is probably the one who did something wrong in this instance. this is not a zero-sum game. people can do bad things on both sides there's there's not a fixed level of evil to, to dole out here. But, yeah, he was of the opinion that actually we should be complaining to Britain, which, as you can expect, didn't go over super well. Right. I don't think Americans are unique in saying that, you know, when when Americans get killed, we we don't like to apologize to the the nation or the people that did it.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah.
0: Just doesn't it just doesn't work that way on an emotional level. This wasn't the first time that Brian and Wilson would disagree in principle, but it definitely would be the final straw leading to Brian's resignation. Brian was of the opinion that nothing was more important than keeping the U.S. out of the war. Not a unique outlook for people to have at this time, but this was an increasingly uh, smaller group of people in the wake of the Lusitania. Putting yourself in the mindset of an American who sees the Lusitania as the willful and premeditated murder of American citizens, you can see how that message might not resonate with large parts of the population.
1: Yeah, that becomes really hard. Help in America, what we'll invade a different country that didn't do it just because of that kind of stuff. Like, hey, Iraq, (laughs) what's up? Right. Brian would
0: resign in June of 1915. So, just the month following the Lusitania's sinking. Mm -hmm. Wilson wrote afterward that he suffers from a singular sort of moral blindness and is as passionate in error as in the right courses he has taken. Wilson kind of points that out as, I don't know, some sort of deep assessment, but I think that's logical. Mm -hmm. If you think you're right and you're a passionate person, you're going to be equally passionate about those things. Quoting here from Robert Tucker, uh, writing in An Inner Circle of One, uh, this is an article about Woodrow Wilson and his advisors. Brian was entirely unsuitable as Secretary of State. He had no qualifications for the position. As Secretary, he was often an embarrassment to Wilson, given his startling ignorance of diplomatic issues and his insistence upon continuing to give public lectures for pay. (laughs) The press made Brian an object of ridicule, as did the Washington political community. Wilson, though defending Brian in the beginning, finally came to agree with those wishing for his resignation. This is an interesting look at how a presidential cabinet works and how that changes given the what's going on in the country. Those major differences of opinion are a lot easier to smooth over and tolerate mm-hmm. when there's no huge crisis facing the nation. Before this starts coming to a head, they don't agree on a lot of stuff, but they can make it work. Even the explanation of why William Jennings Bryan became Secretary of State is is interesting in itself. We don't have time for it here. But it was basically compensation for him pulling out of the presidential race and mm-hmm. splitting the vote.
1: That makes sense. I, I was actually under the impression that all differences in the cabinet were settled by rap battles.
0: If only... Of the people, he probably would have been a decent rapper
1: at the time. You don't think he could keep up with, like, Divi Diggs or anything? I
0: mean, the fact that he was a really good orator, I think, probably True. helps him more so than other people at the time. So, maybe. Reactions from the Anglo-German and German-American community are also interesting to look at. There was a strong anti-German backlash throughout the English-speaking world. So, notably the U.S., Britain, and South Africa. You mm-hmm. had significant public displeasure in some places out and out rioting against people german communities if you want to hear more about that you can hear us do that on patreon we kind of mentioned having an extra part five of lusitania and that's one thing we'll go into detail on we're going to record that on monday the 26th we're going to talk about the lusitania riots we're going to talk about some of the the legality of britain's blockade and german submarine warfare and then just kind of a general wrap-up of things that we couldn't really get into the other four episodes. Check for that on Patreon. So in many cases, this knee-jerk reaction to Germanness in all its forms led to the alienation of people who up to that point would have considered themselves loyal and supportive citizens of the UK and the US. Quoting from Nicoletta Gullis, I think is the pronunciation of this name, writing in an article called Friends, Aliens, and Enemies, Fictive Communities and the Lusitania Riots of 1915. This despair led to precisely the sort of attitudes the British feared in enemy aliens. Such men who were mostly sympathetic to allied countries at the beginnings of the war had in most cases been driven to an out-and-out pro-Germanism, merely from their outraged sense of justice. Modern conflicts, a lot of time we talk about winning hearts and minds Mm -hmm. uh, of the population. Once that rhetoric comes out, things tend to not go very well. Yeah. And yeah, this idea of the, the action itself, the action that is concerned with stopping this behavior, stopping this these ideas from spreading, is the thing that generates more of it.
1: Yeah, that is an interesting cycle that you see play out again and again.
0: If I'm Anglo-German or German-American and no one believes me, no one trusts me, that yeah, I do support uh, the government, I do support the king, whatever, well, I'm I might as well support the nation of my birth, the nation that speaks my native language.
1: And if you think we learned that lesson in the first World War, we're like wait till the second world war. There's it more it gets worse.
0: So in the US, the German American community actually found some support from the Irish Americans. Um so you got a little partnership developing here. Many of whom didn't necessarily support Germany, but obviously they don't want to throw their support behind Britain.
1: Yeah, I guess it was more of a an anti British thing, wasn't it?
0: They've got some beef. That has it, it, developed over the Interesting,
1: centuries. too, though, that like, and especially in the Midwest, that so many of these big communities, the two big ethnic groups are the Irish and the Germans in the especially like the upper Midwest places like Milwaukee and Chicago. And
0: and those are kind of the towns that you think of when you think of big Irish, big German communities. But actually, one of the things we'll cover in Patreon is the city of New Orleans had mm. a vibrant German-American community um, who played a big role in before and after the sinking of the Lusitania. So yeah, more of that on Patreon. Nice.
1: All right, we'll start talking about the U.S. entry into the war by discussing the Zimmerman telegram. We said that the Lusitania didn't necessarily tip the U.S. towards joining the war, so let's briefly talk about what actually did. You could literally have an entire podcast series about this topic as well.
0: Oh yeah, there's whole books written about this. I think Barbara <laughs> Tuckman has a whole book about the Zimmerman mm-hmm. telegram.
1: So we spoke in the previous parts of the episode about Room 40, and the intelligence war being waged by Great Britain. In January of 1917, Room 40 intercepted and decrypted a message from German Foreign Secretary Arthur Zimmerman to the German embassy in Mexico. This is a pretty interesting message. This message contained an offer to the Mexican President Carranza of an alliance against the United States in the event that the resumption of unrestricted warfare brought the U.S. into the war. Mexico would have a chance to reclaim lands in the Southwest that had recently been ceded to the United States. I mean, it's got to be a fairly tempting offer, right? And not to mention, like, there's been a lot of border battles between the U.S. and, you know, various different Mexican authorities in the years not too far in the past, really, right?
0: Not long before this at all. Yeah, you had uh, Pancho Villa's raids. You had the U.S., you know, kind of briefly somewhat informally invading Mexico to try and and also
1: I think I think we forget to like the power dynamic isn't nearly as big I mean granted the US is still far more industrialized and has a much more powerful military it's not the difference that there is today as far as like military power it would have been a real problem
0: it's kind of one of the things also explaining you know why didn't the US go straight to war in 1915 and one of the best explanations is that we couldn't
1: have right
0: barely had an army Certainly not one that would have been able to mobilize and and go overseas to fight in any capacity that's part of it too is we we kind of needed time to to get mm-hmm. ready for this and and also you know the in modern america we we have no problem conceiving of New Mexico and Arizona and California as part of the United States because you know to us they always have been, but it's much less distant in time at this mm-hmm. point you know the the eighteen forties the US invasion of Mexico that ultimately ended in, in that cession of territory, it's not nearly as far in the past to people of mm-hmm. this time. So the idea of taking it back is probably seems much more on the table. It seems less ridiculous than it does to us now.
1: Absolutely, It would have definitely changed the way that all of this turns out, most likely. Uh, so after acquiring additional verification uh, of this through a more traditional means, uh, the British and albeit somewhat gleefully, probably <laughs> present this intercepted message to the United States. Like, you know, it has to feel good to be like, hey, you guys are never going to believe this. But
0: well, I even remember and I think it was in Dead Wake depicting kind of the how that played out within the, the person or people who had actually intercepted and decrypted it, presenting it to their boss mm-hmm. and saying basically, hey, uh, do you want to get the U.S. in the war?
1: Yeah, this is where you start to get into the weird ghoulishness that is like CIA type stuff, a tragedy. You're like, oh, this is this is a good tragedy though. Mm -hmm. We can use this.
0: We talked a little bit about the intelligence side of things, how there's a limited number of things that they can actually act on from Mm -hmm. this room 40 so that they don't give up the game. And this one was interesting how they knew about this. They just kind of had to find some way to explain how they knew it. Mm -hmm. And if I I remember correctly, it was having someone physically, I think, in one of the embassies or one of the consulates you know, find proof of this on someone's desk or whatever. Um, So they could say, hey, look what I discovered.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. It is a very interesting story. It's actually one that I'd probably like to read more about and be a little better informed on.
0: I guess that leads us to the actual declaration of war. The U.S. declaration of war on Germany went into effect on April 6th, 1917. Uh, It passed in the Senate 82 to 6. Hmm. It's baffling to think of the Senate voting on anything. Uh, 82 to 6 now
1: it's also weird to see the number add up to 88
0: and i think also um partially yes because there's not as many states and then there were some senators who didn't vote okay this uh one of the votes against was from arguably wisconsin's most famous politician robert la follette huh fun bit of trivia there that is So no single event was given as the rationale for this declaration, but rather repeated acts of war against the people of the United States of America.
1: We don't need a reason, let's be honest.
0: (laughs) Kind of this cumulative effect, the thousand injuries of Fortunato type situation (laughs) of it just builds and builds and builds and you've got to do something about it. We're not going to get into the war itself. That's uh, for a different podcast, all the various books you can read about that. Uh, But we will fast forward, I think, to the end of the war. Um, or at least the end of the war for someone. (laughs) Uh, So talking about Walter Schwieger, one of the main characters in this drama that plays out, the captain of U-20 who sinks the Lusitania. So Schwieger continued to be a menace to Allied shipping, although obviously none of his victims would come anywhere close to matching the impact of the Lusitania. Lusitania on her own was a significant percentage of the tonnage that he sank in his whole career. That career would end on september 5th 1917 uh not because he retired yeah, he was captaining u-88 which is a newer and larger submarine than u-20 had been um these carried more torpedoes just generally a more effective killing machine schwieger was being pursued by the british q-ship hms stonecrop as you're looking behind you sometimes you don't see what's in front of you <laughs> uh, especially not in the submarine during this chase, U-88 struck a mine and sank north of the island of Terschelling in the Netherlands. And I know Schwiger was killed. I'm assuming the rest of the crew was killed as well.
1: I think it's interesting that you see at the time how like anti-submarine stuff, it kind of all creates an overlapping network because mm-hmm. it's really hard to kill a submarine at the time. Whereas now with like more modern torpedoes and the advent of like destroyers and things like that. It's gotten a lot easier, you know, with sonar and things and aircraft to attack submarines. But at the time, you know, you kind of had to throw everything out there and hope that it worked in a situation like this, you know?
0: Well, it's also interesting to the extent, you know, at the end of the war when the German uh, surface fleet has basically been defanged and the submarine does become the end all be all uh, Mm. of their existence as a fighting force, uh, to the extent that they they devote huge quantities of their of their assets to protecting these submarines. There's, I believe it was actually U 20 possibly U 88 that ran aground, I think somewhere in Norway and the German Navy basically scrambles every available ship to go protect it. The British are actually able to attack some of those ships with their own submarines because they're sort of all congested in this area. Mm -hmm. The submarine kind of becomes a, a, a bit of a talisman, For Germany, it's it's kind of the the one thing that the allies don't have a solution for. Right. Getting into the thing that we usually spend a lot of time on with this show is um, theories and possible explanations for the sinking. So this one, of course, you know, sunk as an act of war. It's torpedoed. That part is is pretty straightforward, although for a time, even even the single torpedo versus two torpedoes was up in the air. We've pretty much firmly established it was just one. Like any big shipwreck story, this one lends itself to conspiracy and cover-up theories. Mm-hmm. I think some some make more sense than others.
1: Right, and I think because like there are elements of conspiracy in a way in this right. story, and like I'll talk more about that at the very end and some concluding thoughts. But like in the technical sense, like there kind of is a conspiracy, but not right. in the way people want to claim it. So soon after the sinking, German
0: ambassador Count von Bernstorff informed President Wilson of sworn affidavits claiming that the Lusitania had been armed at the time of her sinking. I think even starting from that premise alone is probably shaky from a an ethical or legal standpoint because Schwieger would have had no way to know that. Right. So he still thinks he's torpedoing a passenger
1: liner. Yeah, like just because you guessed right doesn't mean it was okay.
0: One of these affidavits came from a man named Gustav Stahl, referred to as a former German soldier, but I... I couldn't find anything about when or in what capacity he had. But,
1: like so, I would assume like just a grunt underling, then. It's like there's no documents about right. it, right?
0: So quoting here from a, an article called The Lusitania's Guns. Guns is in scare quotes here. It's actually from the New York Times' Current History of the European War. So this is from 1915. Uh, Stahl claimed in his affidavit, On the day prior to the sailing of the Lusitania, I was asked by my friend A. Leach, a funny name. It makes it sound it like he's, a funny just, name. he's just a leech. Who was employed as First Cabin Steward to help him bring his trunk aboard. In the course of the evening, we went on board without being hindered by the Quartermaster on guard. After having remained some time in the Gloria, we went to the stern main deck. About 15 to 18 feet from the entrance to the Gloria, on port and starboard respectively, I saw two guns of 12 to 15 centimeters. They were covered with leather, but the barrel was distinctly to be seen. To satisfy my curiosity, I unfastened the buckles to ascertain the caliber of the guns. I could also ascertain that the guns were mounted on the deck on wooden blocks. The guns were placed about three feet from their respective ship sides, and the wall could be removed at that particular place. On the foredeck, there were also two guns of the same caliber and covered in the same manner. Hmm. Pretty damning stuff.
1: It's almost, yeah, like perfect testimony, isn't it?
0: The reliability of Stahl's affidavit was questioned on the grounds that he'd been in contact with paul koenig the head of the detective bureau of the hamburg america line before writing it
1: that's very interesting isn't it
0: talking with a guy who knows ships who works with ships and
1: who could tell you kind of the right things to say
0: Mm -hmm. and give you maybe some some numbers some number estimates to throw out there
1: just to get it close
0: the affidavit had also been in koenig's possession after the writing. And it was actually Koenig who passed it along to Count von Bernsdorf.
1: Yeah, it sounds pretty convenient. Stahl also seemed to
0: exhibit a surprising knowledge of the ship's layout and design. Remember, he he didn't even work anywhere with the ship. He happened to go on to help out a guy that he knew move some stuff. Mm-hmm. His knowledge is far deeper than what would be expected of someone who just happened to be on board and just stumbled across four fully mounted guns. And also was able to very quickly assess their caliber,
1: yeah, like I think you'd have to know a lot about guns to to do that, right like especially big field guns or something.
0: It's interesting. it's shockingly detailed for someone who has no or shouldn't have any knowledge of these things. Mm-hmm. you know he's throwing out measurements and numbers, and that's that's not even why he's on the ship. so very interesting very. He was ultimately indicted on charges of perjury. Because he repeated those same claims in court. Don't want to do that. I didn't see anything about his actual sentencing. I think he he was eligible, is that the word, for up to, I think, like five years in prison or something.
1: I think perjury is, like, exceptionally hard to actually prosecute, just as a concept.
0: Another theory involves Lusitania's cargo. So she was known to be carrying munitions on board, specifically, like, rifle cartridges. And that was on her manifest. That's not a secret.
1: Yeah, I feel like like the early 2000s are all these shows that would come out and be like *Lusitania's is deadly cargo. And it's like it wasn't a secret. Like it, it was a known thing.
0: They actually had done tests to even allow ships to carry these things where they they basically put these cartridges in a situation where they would cook off to mm-hmm. see like what effect does this have in like crowded hold. And they found that they were, you know, not explosive in bulk. So, yes, like they 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 might go off, they might start cooking off, but they wouldn't cause this big explosion. Mm -hmm. So there there have been obviously accusations that the Lusitania carried a secret cargo of high explosive material, which would have been considered contraband and therefore liable to sinking. In the Patreon, we'll talk about these contraband classes and things like high explosive material would fall under that, saying this is this is uh, has its intent to be used in the field. In combat, so you can sink it. There's no hard evidence for this. As we've mentioned before, that second explosion was big, but not nearly what you would have if you had these high explosive rounds going off. Right. That would have blown a significant portion of the Lusitania to pieces. And that's simply not what happened to it. Mm -hmm. Another theory that kind of swirls around is that the British government conspired to allow Lusitania to be sunk in order to draw the US into the war. This is kind of the one that has the most legs. Right. I think from not so much out of a a willful setup, if you will, but more of a capitalizing on something that is probably going to happen. Right. So while Room 40 could track submarines and decode their messages as they communicated with ports back in Germany, once the U-boats were out of range, they stopped transmitting because it's not going to get to its recipient. Basically, they're, they're going radio silent at that point. And that basically left Room 40 unable to track these U-boats. If they're not sending messages, there's no way to track them. So the British wouldn't really have been able to set up a perfect encounter between a specific vessel and a specific U-boat, even if they'd wanted to. That's kind of how this gets painted sometime. You know, they knew this was Lusitania's route, they knew U-20 was here. Bang.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's clear that they knew that U-20 was operating in the general area and didn't share that information. But like, that's what we were talking about like right that to me like that is the conspiracy but it's the conspiracy that has to happen to protect this secret that apparently they're holding on to in case the german fleet decides to break out Which, yeah and if the german fleet had broke out at some point and it was used for that then this would have probably looked like a much better decision <laughs> right. but since it never happens it does look yeah i can see where you get there where it's like well they purposely withheld this to get the us in the war
0: yeah and i see a little bit of the similarity in some stuff that I've sort of read about the bombing of Coventry that is, you know, from the second world war that gets put out as the same type of thing, you know, the British intelligence withholding information because they don't want to give away what they know. That's not the whole story of Coventry. Mm -hmm. They didn't know pinpoint where this raid was going to happen. They basically knew that a raid was going to happen somewhere. And there's a lot of somewheres to raid. (laughs) Right. Similar situation maybe to this of yeah they knew something was going to happen but again they didn't quite have the power to pinpoint where that was going to be it's obviously clear that the british were happy to take advantage of this event once it did happen right they're not going to turn down this opportunity to agitate the us and and get them involved
1: never waste a crisis i think is what i've heard said before excellent who said that mr rogers i got to look that up i don't think it's anyone we want to emulate let's see here Never waste a crisis. Oh, Heinrich Um, (laughs) Himmler. Well, I guess Winston Churchill actually said never let a good crisis go to waste. We'll stick with that one.
0: All right. Slightly better.
1: Yeah, slightly better.
0: Uh, So the most plausible and widely accepted explanation for the second explosion is that her steam lines ruptured, Mm -hmm. which would also coincide and explain her loss of steam pressure.
1: Which I think Schweiger even notes in his log like possible boiler explosion
0: and the boiler thing obviously was uh, a theory also is that one of the boilers maybe exploded that didn't happen because there's survivors from all mm-hmm. of the boiler rooms and mm-hmm. kind of that fact alone tells you that none of the boilers exploded but then right. they testified that that didn't happen another explanation is the the coal dust in her coal mm-hmm. bunkers may have ignited and, and and gone off the response to that is typically that that probably would have been too damp. To to mm-hmm. cause this kind of explosive, expl- explosive reaction, <laughs> um, this this explosive reaction. So as to why she sank as fast as she did, you know she's an enormous ship. People at the time are, are probably thinking along the lines of the Titanic. You've got two to three hours to evacuate, and in fact, mm-hmm. you've got about eighteen minutes. The blame for this usually falls on the construction of these longitudinal coal bunkers. So mm-hmm. on her sides, which concentrated all of the flooding. On one side and caused her to list so dramatically with Titanic we have that image of her nose down in the water with her tail right. with her stern up in the air with Lusitania the image is far more focused on her list you know she's listing right. so hard to starboard you can't deploy those lifeboats her port side is so far up in the air those are also can't be deployed and the reason for that being that you have this longitudinal compartment that's filling with water just on one side. Right. Overall, I think the, the general logical consensus that a lot of people come to is that Schwieger just had an incredibly lucky shot.
1: Yeah. That's kind of, what I'm thinking is it just, it couldn't have hit in a worse spot for Lusitania essentially,
0: which is like, understandably it's kind of an unsatisfactory explanation, but mm-hmm. it's like, so many things in life, that's why they happen. That's why they're noteworthy is because they're mm-hmm. so rare and so improbable.
1: That's what luck is. The lucky shot, it goes from if he misses, like he did previously, it's a footnote on an obscure website somewhere. Mm-hmm. And instead, now there's entire genres, a genres worth of books and research done on this.
0: Speaking just for myself here, I think this is another example of how you know, the, the more emphasis that gets placed on conspiracy theories, um, not just the Lusitania, but a lot of the other shipwrecks we talk about. It it sort of distracts attention from those who most directly are deserving of of the attention of of the blame. In this case, Walter Schwieger decided to sink Lusitania. It was within the letter of his instructions, but he he decided to do it. That's ultimately the culprit of this.
1: Yeah, I think Eric Larson in Dead Wake goes out of his way to point out that like these U-boat commanders have absolutely every you know decision is theirs to make once they're at sea like they decide where they go what they do they get general directives but it's up to them as to how to achieve it they decide when to go home so like he didn't have to do it
0: like i said it's it's a common theme in shipwrecks because i think
1: i think it's because so
0: often key points of the story are unknown mm-hmm. and in many cases unknowable there's mm-hmm. there's no possible way we're ever going to know the answer to this and i think that lends itself to conspiratorial thinking mm-hmm. we always want to see. Well, what really happened here? Uh, when in fact the explanation is is probably right there. You know, we want to construct this elegant story that checks all of the boxes for drama and entertainment. And I somewhat feel the same about the NATO conspiracy around the sinking of the Estonia. Right. You know, ignoring documented historical evidence of problems with these ships, the same specific problems that probably sank the Estonia. In a way, it kind of prevents the right people from being focused on and being held accountable. I think it's just a feature of the human brain that everyone's susceptible to uh, at some point. it is It does make for a better story very often. It would be a better movie, for example, if there was some grand conspiracy to transport high explosive material. But even with that one, I think I talked about this with you the other day. Those two primary conspiracies about being a contrived sinking and her carrying contraband materials, they don't work together. They can't no, both they be don't. true. because. Right. The Admiralty is not going to sink a ship that they know is carrying valuable, high explosive material.
1: I think how often do you see that in these conspiracy theories where they become like self-contradictory at a certain point?
0: Yeah, they start to trip over themselves. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I I feel like if there's always some grand conspiracy in the background, you know, there's always someone pulling the strings. It sort of absolves us of having to care because it's totally Mm -hmm. out of our control. There's nothing we could have done. And granted, this is somewhat different. This is during wartime, not quite the same as a lot of the the accidents that we talk about. right? That are the result of human negligence. But I think that that's an element also, is that it's it's almost weirdly comforting to think that someone intentionally did this rather than something just happened.
1: Yeah, and I think as far as conspiracies, like we've said previously here, the only conspiracy I see is room 40, but it's not that grand conspiracy <laughs> that we're talking about here. It literally is that conspiracy of silence and I mean, you can make pro and con arguments as if you know morally was at the right choice, but it's a choice that's understandable, I think, in the course mm-hmm. of war, that you have to keep some state secrets, even if it means that someone might lose their life that shouldn't. It's not the only time in history that this has happened. I guess also kind of just wrapping up a thought here on Lusitania and kind of its role in getting the United States into World War One and just the overall effects. You know, I think it's presented, especially in the United States, when you're growing up as a Pearl Harbor like event. This is the reason why the United States got into World War One. And I think the better comparison is actually Malaysia Airlines Flight 17, Mm. which is the airliner that was shot down over the Donbass in, I believe,
0: 2014,
1: 2014. None of that meant anything to me when it happened. Right. The Donbass and these breakaway republics and stuff. And now, you know, we all know far more about it than we'd ever want to, right? Mm-hmm. We we know a lot about this from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I think, like we were saying, it's what makes it easy if you're a neutral to be like, well, the Russians are probably the bad guys here, right? I mean, in general, the good guys don't shoot down airliners full of innocent people. right? So I think it's interesting that you can make that comparison with Lusitania. And I think that those events are much more similar. Than like a Pearl Harbor or a 911 type event event mm-hmm. I, you know Lusitania isn't to that magnitude as far as the overall ripples that come out of it
0: we're expanding this out into a discussion of of global instances of this I think we would stick by that saying that yeah the the good guys don't shoot down airliners and that applies to the United States also because <laughs> yeah. I seem to remember that we have done that uh in the past uh was it an, an Iranian yes plane I believe that we shot down which yeah. they
1: also then shot down one of their own airliners in the last couple of years, so that's rough. I guess the whole point is, like in all of this, kind of like we were talking about in the pacifist section, like war's bad. Bad things happen. It's kind of always been the case, right? So
0: back to to wrapping up our Lusitania here. We rambled a bit in this episode, but it's we the conclusion. Have. That's that's alright. We'll I'll decide what is just in the Patreon and what is in the main feed. <laughs> But yeah, with that we're finishing up our biggest episode to date. Um I know I've enjoyed the process of researching and learning about a ship that I I thought I knew kind of decently well and
1: I really didn't. Yeah, it's interesting with the story that yeah, like you said, like I thought I probably knew it better than the average person, but I feel like I know a lot more now and there but honestly like you could keep digging, like you could do so much more with this.
0: Even this feels very inadequate. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I didn't include in in this episode.
1: Absolutely. uh, I would say if you want more of this and you want it to be accessible, definitely read Dead Wake by Eric Larson. That was the big source for a lot of my information. And I definitely feel like for such a dense topic, he does an excellent job of making it exceptionally readable.
0: I think my other favorite book from this was Diana Preston's Lusitania and Epic Tragedy. Hers went into some detail that the others didn't go into. Mm -hmm. I I really enjoyed that one as well. I, I like Dead Wake. Uh, two, I think, for a, I would probably say if if you're only planning to read one book about the Lusitania, Dead Wake is a is a good one to to mm-hmm. read. I think I said something similar with the Edmund Fitzgerald about Michael Schumacher's book. Right. Uh, there's tons of books, but obviously not everyone has the time or the interest in in reading all of them. So patrons, be on the lookout for a Patreon exclusive part five, in which we'll discuss the legality of the British blockade, anti-German riots in the aftermath of the Lusitania and some other loose bits that we weren't quite able to cram into any of these other four episodes. And with that, I guess we're signing off on Lusitania and signing off on season two of beyond the breakers. We'll be back next season. We'll probably take a little break for new year uh, and we'll be back with season three. So thank you for listening. We appreciate it. Thank you for supporting the show and we will talk to you next year.